Now, if you have a Bible, uh, I invite you up to uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And so uh, this is a passage that continues the confrontations that's been taking place between Jesus and the religious authorities of Jerusalem. Uh, this is what we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks as we've been working our way through Mark chapter 11 and then Mark chapter 12. So uh, let's go ahead and, and read this passage. Please follow along as I read aloud, starting uh, in Mark chapter 12, verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put, a, put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word this morning, uh, we first pause and just want to give thanks for it. We thank you that you have revealed us, to, uh, revealed to us yourself in your word and that we can truly know you through it. And God, it's our earnest desire to know you more, to make you more known in our community. And so God, we ask for your spirit's help this morning as we consider this passage. God, that you in your spirit would transform us as we turn our attention to your word. God, there's so much uh, for us to pray for today um, in the midst of, of such a, an uncertainty facing us with, uh, with the coronavirus out there. And so, God, we just ask for wisdom for us. Help us to be a people who love well, who love others, who love you. God, we ask that you would be present among us now this morning. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, as I mentioned, kind of an interesting week this week, and, and in the midst of the, the tumult of uh, the last couple days, I've often wondered if this is the right passage for us to look at this morning. Um, if you've been with us for a while, uh, you know that we see there's this great value in going through a book, a book of the Bible, passage by passage. Uh, this is one of the ways that we as, as a church uh, teach what Paul refers to as the whole counsel of God. Um, in the book of Acts. And, and we see great value in doing that, and yet uh, every now and then it is wise for us to take a break from the next passage to, to look at things that are um, facing the church, facing the, the community, in this case, facing the globe. And uh, ultimately, as I was studying this passage, I thought that this passage was more than appropriate for us this morning because this passage, um, in the midst of, uh, of all this uncertainty, this passage, these three verses, um, they, they have a lot to speak to us this morning. It's because each and every one of them is about who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. This is a passage that tells us who Jesus is from the lips of Jesus himself. And I don't think there's anything that's more comforting to us, more encouraging to us, anything more important for us to remind ourselves of than this truth this morning. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to walk through these three verses by looking just at three different questions that come up from each of these verses. So three verses, three questions. Let's go ahead and jump into the first. First one is in verse 35. First question is this, do the scribes really know who the Messiah will be? Do the scribes really know who the Messiah will be? Verse 35, and as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? The first 10 Chapters or so of the Gospel of Mark cover anywhere from one year to three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. But then when we get to Mark chapter 11, Mark like pumps the brakes 
and things slow down significantly. Mark 11 through 16 actually focus just on the final week of Jesus' life, leading up to his crucifixion and then the resurrection that takes place afterwards. So these chapters that we are in right now all take place over the course of one week of his life. And that's why some people, as they're studying the Gospel of Mark, say that, that the Gospel of Mark is a passion narrative or a description of the, of the crucifixion with an extended introduction. There is this description of who Jesus is in the beginning, and then all of a sudden, the, the majority of Mark's time takes place looking at the final week of Jesus' life leading to the crucifixion. And so, in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, we see that Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he actually enters Jerusalem on Sunday, what, what most scholars or a lot of scholars think is April 2nd, 30 AD, all right? So you can go ahead and write that down, April 2nd. 30 AD, a Sunday, Jesus and other, other pilgrims are traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. And this is a moment that's been prophesied of in the Old Testament for centuries before. And it, and it seemed like this was supposed to be the defining moment of Jesus' ministry, this moment where he enters into Jerusalem and that he is crowned king and that he, Jesus the Messiah, establishes his kingdom. And then he enters into the temple and he finds that no one is waiting for him in the temple. And this is a defining moment but not in a good way. Israel is not waiting for her Messiah, and so the following passage in Mark chapter 11 is this passage of judgment from Jesus against the religious authorities of Jerusalem, those who were supposed to prepare God's people to be ready for God's return, God's entering into the temple, have instead neglected that responsibility and now are leading them astray. And so we have this passage that's referred to as the cleansing of the temple. And this is Jesus' judgment on the temple and upon the religious establishment. And the rest of Mark 11 and Mark 12 focuses on this divide between Jesus and the religious establishment. All of the things that we've been looking at for the last couple of weeks in Mark chapter 12 take place on Tuesday, April 4th. And this is another passage that takes place just a couple days after what took place when Jesus entered into Jerusalem. Notice how the, the people... It, it, in, uh, in Mark chapter 11, uh, what their mindset is toward Jesus here. It says that, excuse me, uh, at the end of, or in Mark chapter 11, the, the religious leaders desire to destroy Jesus. And that is what we see in Mark 11 and Mark 12. And we see all of these different people coming to Jesus, asking these, these questions of Jesus in an attempt to trap him, as an attempt to destroy him, and an attempt to discredit him. And then in the verse right before ours, Mark chapter 12, verse 34, we see the result of all of their efforts to get rid of Jesus. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And this morning's passage picks up right on the heels of that. Even though the people stop asking Jesus questions. Now Jesus is the one who is going to ask the questions. He is still in the temple. He's still in the center of the first century of Judaism. And now he has a question for them. You scribes, do you even know who the Messiah will be? Now many of us are familiar with what the word Messiah means. The Messiah was a vitally important figure in Israel's hopes. And I just want to, to pause and you'll notice that I use the word Messiah and Christ interchangeably um, this morning. And our passage refers to the Christ. And, and they refer to the same person. They are both referring to God's chosen king that the people of Israel look forward to. One is just Messiah is just the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. And so they are interchangeable for us this morning. So Jesus asked these people, do you even know who the Messiah is going to be? 
About a thousand years before the time of Jesus, God makes a promise to King David, the the king of Israel, that one of his descendants is going to sit on his throne forever. And yet, for the next 400 years or so, after God has made that promise, Israel continues to decline as a nation. And then in the late 500s, they all, uh, the, Israel ceases to be a nation. For the next 600 years, until the time of Jesus, they're ruled by different nations. Israel is ruled, ruled by the Babylonians, and then by the Persians, and then by the Greeks, and then by the Romans, is what we see in our passage, in our context this morning. And during those 600 years of oppression, the people of Israel hold out to this hope. They hold on to this hope that God hasn't forgotten his promise, That even though they are no longer a nation, that God will one day send his chosen king, the Messiah. God will one day send the Christ, and this Christ will establish God's kingdom forever. Now, as you can imagine, as, as oppression increases, so also does this longing for this hope to be fulfilled. And here, 600 years after Israel ceases to become uh, to be a nation, as they're living under the Roman Empire's iron fist, during this time, this longing for the Messiah is at an all-time high. Specifically, during the time of the Passover, the Passover is this yearly celebration in Jerusalem, remembering how God had saved the people of Israel from the Egyptian slavery and how God had made them a nation, and there's this sense every Passover that this is how God saved us once, we can only hope that this is the year that he will save us again. So Jesus' question about the Messiah is on everyone's mind at this point because they're in the midst of the Passover celebrations. Now remember who the scribes are. Scribes are the people with the best theological education that you could imagine. These are the people who know their Bibles better than anyone else does. They're highly respected when it comes to matters of the Bible because they have the credentials to go along with it. Now, if anyone would know what to expect about the Messiah, what he would would be like, it would be the scribes. And so Jesus' response is so surprising. You see, the scribes believed that they had everything figured out, exactly what the Messiah had been, would be like. They had scoured the Old Testament. They had reached a conclusion about what this Christ would be like, what he would do, where he would come from, all of these things and more. And this is what makes Jesus' question so pointed and shocking. Notice how it is worded in verse 35. How can the, the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? How can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? The very way he words the question assumes the scribes are wrong, doesn't it? Now, uh, as, as many of you, as I'm sure all of you are aware, one of the effects of the coronavirus cancellations this past week is the canceling of March Madness of the NCAA tournament. And this was a devastating uh, news for me, but um, because I'm a, I'm a big Iowa Hawkeye fan, And uh, many of you know that um, Luca Garza, one of their basketball players, is one of the finalists for the National Player of the Year Award. And another one of the people that is up for this National Player of the Year Award is uh, a man from Dayton College. His name is Obi Toppin. Now, this past week, uh, I was interacting with a friend who is actually from the Dayton area of Ohio, big Dayton Flyers fan. And uh, he staunchly believes that Obi Toppin is the better player than Luca Garza is. 
And uh, how did I respond? I responded by saying, how can you say that Toppin is more deserving than Garza? I didn't say, well, give me your opinion on what, what makes him a better candidate for this. I said, how can you possibly say that? That, that doesn't make any sense to me. Now, in reality, that's a, that's a subject, relatively subjective question. You can, you can, you can debate whether who, you know, which one of these guys is better, but, I mean, there is a right answer, and it is Luca Garza. But, but in the way I worded the question... How can you say that? I assumed that the, the, the other party was wrong, right? How can you say that, Luke, or that Obi Toppin is more deserving than Luca Garza? That's an assumption of error on the other person's fault. And, and I mean, they were wrong. They are wrong. But when Jesus asks his question, he uses the exact same topic or the same tactic, doesn't he? He assumes that the scribes are wrong. He, he says, how can the scribes say, and then he talks about the Messiah, that the Christ is the son of David. There's an assumption of error. These people who know their Bibles better than anyone else, the ones who are teaching people about what to look for when it comes to the Messiah, all of their hopes, they're wrong. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? You see, in a way, Jesus' question here, do the scribes know who the Messiah will be? And he assumes and says that they don't. It's the fundamental question of the Gospel of Mark. If you were with us when we began going through the Gospel of Mark, one of the first things that we pointed out is that Mark is really split into two parts. There's the first eight chapters which focus on the question, who is Jesus? And then the second eight chapters focus on the question, what does that mean? Who is Jesus, and what does that mean? And the book of Mark hinges on a passage in Mark chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember this question, who is Jesus? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Mark are leading to this moment, this question, who is Jesus, who is Jesus, who is Jesus? All of the events that are recorded are focused on what does it mean for us to truly understand who Jesus is. And then we get the revelation of who Jesus is in Mark chapter 8, and then we see this transition. And the transition now is, okay, you understand who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. But do you really understand what that means? That's why we have this strange passage in the following verses. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why are Jesus' words to Peter here so harsh? Well, it's because Peter doesn't understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. He has this understanding of what Jesus the Messiah means that has been founded or been based upon everything that the scribes have taught him. That this Jesus, that this Messiah is going to come and establish an earthly kingdom. 
And so when Jesus, at the beginning of this new section of the Gospel of Mark, begins to tell people, begins to tell his disciples, hey, yes, I'm the Messiah, and that means that I'm coming, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise again. Peter says, no, there's, there's no way that that can happen. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You come to establish an earthly kingdom that will last forever. How could you say this, Jesus? And then Jesus responds with such harsh words because the man, Peter, has his mind on the things just like the scribes. He doesn't fully understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Jesus rebukes him. By implication, he rebukes the scribes as well. The question, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, to fully understand this question, let's look at our second question. How can the Messiah only be David's son? How can the Messiah only be David's son? Verses 36 and 37. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Jesus has earlier argued that the scribes don't understand their Bibles when it comes to the Messiah. And remember, David has been promised a son who will rule over Israel forever, this one we call the Messiah. This Messiah would be a descendant of David, and that's common knowledge. God says as much in 1 Chronicles 17, Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you, David, a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son." I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So Jesus' question here is not concerned with whether or not the Christ is the descendant of King David. He's, he's concerned with something different. He's concerned with whether the Christ is only the descendant of David. Is he only David's son, or is he something more? And to answer that question, Jesus goes to Psalm 110. Psalm 110, which is written by David himself. Now, I want to just take 30 seconds to highlight the significance of Jesus' words here as he introduces Psalm 110. Notice how he introduces this quote. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. And then he goes into the passage. David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. So Jesus gives us a picture of how Scripture, and not just this passage, but all of Scripture, is recorded. Have you ever wondered how we got our Bibles, the Bible that is in front of you? Was it given to us down from God? Was it given via dictation? Jesus gives us insight here into how Scripture was recorded, the dual authorship of scripture. In other words, scripture is simultaneously written by God, and it's also simultaneously written by human authors. Jesus tells us that David, David himself, wrote these words. But at the exact same time David was writing these words, the Holy Spirit was at work. The words that David wrote 
were David's words, but simultaneously they were exactly what the Holy Spirit intended for him to write down. David's words are exactly what God intended to be written down. He didn't just tell him what to write down. God did not appear to David or any other author of Scripture and say, okay, get your pen ready, let me know when you are ready, and I'll start telling you what to write down. No, instead, God used real people with real personalities in real situations with real life experiences to write Scripture. This is why, if you've noticed, the book of John reads so differently than the book of Mark. This is why Peter's epistles, his letters, read so differently than the letters of Paul. It's because God uses different authors, different people, with different personalities to record his timeless word. And that is important for us to recognize here when it comes to Psalm 110 and Jesus' arguments about the Christ and the Messiah. That's exactly what Jesus is describing here. Psalm 110 records David's words, but David wasn't mistaken. David was speaking the words of God. So let's follow Jesus' argument in this passage. Remember, David is the king. There's no other person in higher authority than Israel, in Israel than him. Israel is not a subjected nation in this, at this point. It's not as though that David is the king, but he has to run all of his decisions, all of his plans, all of his um, ideas up the flagpole to another king in Persia or in Babylon or in Rome or somewhere else. No, David is the ultimate authority under God in the nation of Israel. He's an absolute monarch, which means he has absolute power. And of course, the only one who has more power than David would be God himself. Jesus' argument here makes a little more sense when we read it in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open up to uh, Psalm 110. Um, and, and this is important to, to note the, notice the difference here, um, to, to notice Jesus' argument. In Psalm 110, verse 1, you'll notice that this is the passage that is quoted. It says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, as you look here at, at um, at verse 1, you'll, you'll notice that there are two different ways that the word Lord is spelled here in verse 1, aren't there? The first one is Lord with all capital letters, L-O-R-D, all in capital letters. And this is because it is referring to the divine name of God. This is the word Yahweh in Hebrew translated as the Lord. And if you see the, the word the Lord in the Old Testament translated or written this way, it is referring to the special name of God. It is the name that God used when he reveals himself to his covenant people, when he reveals himself to Israel. This is the special name of God. So the first uh, Lord here is referring to God himself. And then there is another Lord, but it is written the way you and I would write the word Lord. In Psalm 110, then, we have this conversation between God himself, the Lord God, and someone else who David refers to as Lord. And this is the Hebrew word Adonai, which sometimes it refers to God, but more generally it's just a, refer, a, a term of respect, a term of authority. So you would call a king my Lord as a sign of your subservience to them. To call someone Lord is not just a nicety, it's actually a statement of their authority. So in Psalm 110, then, we actually have three people that are in view here, okay? So we have three people that are in view. The first is David. David is just an observer here. 
Because there are two other people that are talking, and David is recording what they are saying. He's writing down this interaction. David is the scribe. He's observing these two people that are interacting with one another. Remember, David is the king. David is the highest authority in the land other than God. And yet David is just writing down this interaction. The second person in view here is the Lord, Yahweh, who is speaking with someone else that David calls Lord, and that's the third person, this mysterious Lord. So here's Jesus' question. Who's the third person? Who is talking with God himself that David is observing this interaction? Who is the person that David refers to as my Lord? Who on earth could David, the king of Israel, the highest authority in the land, be referring to as my Lord, as a statement of subservience, as saying this person has a higher authority than I do? And it's here that Jesus exposes the scribes' inadequate understanding of the Messiah. They only thought that the Messiah was the son of David, which he is. Scripture makes that very clear. But the Bible also tells us he is so much more than that. If he was only the son of David, then David would never refer to him as my Lord. I have two sons. I love them both dearly, but I would never call them my Lord as a statement of my subservience to them, that I would be submitting myself to their authority. And yet that's exactly what David does. Fathers don't talk this way to their sons, but here's the implication of Jesus' statement. That the son of David, the Messiah, is far more than just the son of David. Of David. The question, of course, is if the Messiah is more than David's son, then what is the Messiah really like? What is the Messiah really like? That's the unanswered question here in this passage, isn't it? We've worked our way through Mark's gospel, and we've seen him do this, Mark do this over and over and over again. He will pose a question and he'll just let it hang there. He doesn't give us the answer. That's why the Gospel of Mark is my favorite gospel. It's because it's like an excellent teacher. It doesn't spoon feed us. It doesn't give us all of the answers just right off the bat. It asks the question, and it gives us time. And it basically says, if you've been paying attention, then you will know exactly what the answer to this question is, that you will be able to work this out on your own. And so here's my question. Have we been paying attention? Have we been paying attention? Mark chapter 1 starts with four testimonies of who Jesus is. Mark himself in Mark chapter 1 verse 1. Scripture, Mark 1, 2 through 3. John the Baptist, Mark 1, 4 through 8. And then a voice from heaven, Mark 1, 9 through 11. Mark 1 shows us that Jesus is the most powerful teacher there ever was, that he had power over sickness, he had power over evil spirits, he had the power to make the unclean clean. Mark 2 tells us that Jesus is able to heal a paralytic. Mark chapter 3 tells us, or shows us more and more healings and exorcisms. Mark 4 shows us that Jesus can still a storm with just his word, something that only God can do. Mark 5 shows us that Jesus is able to stop evil incarnate in his tracks because of his power, and that Jesus has power over death itself. Mark 6 shows us that Jesus can supply endless food for his people because of his compassion. And he is the long-awaited good shepherd of God's people. Mark 6 also shows us that Jesus can walk on the wind and the waves, something that only God can do in the Old Testament. Jesus heals people by even the most loosest of associations with him, merely by touching Jesus' clothes. Jesus heals so many people that Mark sums it all up at the end of Mark 6 by saying, And wherever he came, 
in villages, cities, or countryside. They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that he might touch even the fringe of the garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Mark 7 shows us that Jesus can heal a pagan woman's daughter by, without even saying a word at a distance. Mark 7, we also see that Jesus can heal a deaf man, give him his hearing back. He can loosen the tongue of the mute, just like in the Old Testament, where it was prophesied that God would do when he came and returned to earth. Mark chapter 8, we see that Jesus is able to provide for people in the wilderness, just like he did with the people in the Old Testament. We also see in Mark chapter 8 that he heals the blind. Mark chapter 9, the veil of Jesus' glory is pulled back just for a moment, and we see that he is on a mountaintop, and he's speaking with his people just like God did at Mount Sinai, on a mountaintop, his glory revealed, but for a moment. Mark chapter 10, it is a blind man who can see who Jesus really is, crying out for mercy, something that you only did to God himself. In Mark chapter 11, we see that Jesus enters into the temple in the exact same way in the Old Testament that it was prophesied that God would when he ushers in his kingdom. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. So then we get to this passage. And Jesus has all of that in the background. He's not less than the son of David, but he is so much more than David's son. He is also David's Lord. How do the people respond? In the verse 34, do they get it? Do they grasp that Messiah is not just the son of David, but he is also the son of God? Sorry, I said verse 34. I meant the end of verse 37. And the great throng heard him gladly. You see, last week it was a scribe who did not have Jesus and was left outside the kingdom of God. Now it's the crowd that hears who Jesus really is, and yet rather than responding to God the way that God commands, the text just tells us that they heard him gladly. But they were thrilled. It was must-see TV. The theological experts of the day were left dumbfounded by a teacher from Galilee. But there was no faith, no repentance, no obedience, no worship, just self-satisfied smiles. I love the way one pastor so soberly reminds us, gladly hearing does not get one into the kingdom any more than acknowledging Jesus' wisdom does in the previous story. It is not enough to say Jesus is right. One must also confess he is Lord. What about you? It is a terrifying thought that you can come to church and you can hear the gospel gladly without surrendering to its message fully. That's terrifying. This is why this passage is a sister passage to the one we looked at last week. It asks the exact same question, but in a different way. Who is Jesus? It's not enough for us to say, I believe in Jesus. Even the demons believe in him and shudder. 
James makes that clear. The reality is Jesus is not just David's son. Jesus is not just David's Lord. He must be your Lord as well. I don't think it's insignificant that this passage comes immediately after the one that took place last week, that we looked at last week. Last week, Jesus is asked, what is the most important commandment there is? And he answered this way. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And then moments after that, what does Jesus do? Moments after he says that the most important thing that you can do is to love the Lord your God with every fiber of your being, he is describing himself, the Christ, and he describes himself as Lord. So the question of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, is found, its application is found in applying that to Jesus, in loving, in submitting, in recognizing who Jesus is. You have to respond with all your heart. You can't just hear him gladly if you want to find a place in his kingdom. You have to respond with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength to who he is and to his message. Consider his first words in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says this, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Plain and simple, to be a part of, of Jesus' kingdom, we have to acknowledge him as Lord, and we have to respond with obedience and faith. And that's the message of this passage. If we boil it down to one sentence, I think it would simply be this, truly Seeing Jesus for who he is leads to wholly obeying Jesus for what he has done. Truly seeing Jesus for who he is leads to wholly obeying Jesus for what he has done. Do you see Jesus for who he truly is? That he is not just David's son, he is also David's Lord, and he must be Lord of your life as well. That he must have authority over all of your life. Do you Hold to that truth, or do you keep those truths, and, and by implication, all of its implications for your life, do you keep them at arm's distance? You, you receive him gladly, but you won't receive him as your Lord. This passage makes it very clear that you can't be a part of his kingdom without truly seeing and truly knowing Jesus. Truly seeing Jesus for who he is leads to wholly obeying Jesus for what he has done. What about you? How do you respond to the call of the gospel? Jesus is both Son and Lord. Is he your Lord? I don't just mean an act of praying to give your life to Jesus as an act of salvation. But is, is he the king over all of your life? Every area of your life? Or do you still hold on to some areas, refusing to submit them to him? I think it was Augustine who said, Lord, uh, the Lord cannot be um, above all unless he is the Lord of all. 
And that's what this passage is saying. Jesus is not just David's son. He is David's Lord. And he must be your Lord as well. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for the message of uh, Scripture. We thank you for the message of this passage. We ask that you would help us to be a people who respond to it rightly, who do not just hear you gladly, but actually let this passage sink in deeply to transform our hearts and our lives, that we would be a people who follow after you. God, help us to surrender every area of our lives to you, knowing that you are not just an earthly king, but you are the son of God. And you deserve all praise and honor and obedience over every facet of our lives. Thank you, God. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.